In July of the year 2000, I performed a wedding for a young couple in Seashell. And the groom was a member of the Canadian Olympic wrestling team. And his groomsmen and uh, several guests at the wedding uh, were also wrestlers from Simon Fraser University who were preparing themselves for the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney, Australia. Nigerian-Canadian wrestler Daniel Igali, who won gold for Canada at those summer games, was also at the wedding. And those guys were all elite athletes. But there is a price to pay for being an Olympic wrestler. It becomes obvious when you look at them, they all have cauliflower ears. <laughs> and one of the costs of Olympic wrestling and repeatedly getting held in headlocks is cauliflower ear. That means ears that are partly torn off, permanently deformed, and looking knobbly like cauliflower. Well, it doesn't look very pretty, but among those wrestlers, cauliflower ear is actually considered as a veteran's badge, a, a mark of courage and experience. Only one of the wrestlers there at the wedding had normal-looking ears because uh, he wore protective headgear when he wrestled. So the other wrestlers had a name for him. They called him Pretty Boy. <laughs> well, wrestling with Olympians can leave you slightly disfigured, but wrestling with God can leave you crippled. You know, Jacob's wrestling match with the Lord left him with a permanent limp. And so from the start of Jacob's story here, we've seen how Jacob has been a very imperfect uh, person. He seems to be always getting into trouble or just getting out of trouble or about to make more trouble. But he has one redeeming quality that dominates the whole story, and that is that he wants God. He has a passion to be blessed by God. And he will cheat and scheme and manipulate to get a blessing if that seems to him to be the only way. But one thing that Jacob is not is apathetic. I mean, there's nothing lukewarm about, about Jacob, and God is not apathetic either. He's always after Jacob, seeking him and finding him, apprehending him, calling his number, and showing up in the most unlikely places, especially when things get dangerous. And Jacob, rather than sitting back and passively waiting for his blessing, takes God on. He wrestles with God. I mean, Jacob's name means grabber or he who grabs the heel. It's a name he got at birth in Genesis 25 when he reached from the womb to grab the heel of his twin brother Esau. And the intensity that Jacob has for the blessing of God makes him truly a God wrestler. He hounds God, he hustles God, and ultimately he says to God here, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God blesses him. But why does God bless such a schemer and deceiver as Jacob? Well, it's because God is not only looking for passive, compliant servants. He wants sons and daughters who are passionate about him, who believe in him zealously and who, who won't quit seeking him. He's a passionate God looking for passionate people. And his kingdom is not for the mildly interested. It's for the desperate. It's for those who long for it. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse, 11, verse 12, forceful people lay hold of it. And it's the same principle as in Matthew 5, verse 6, when Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So we can't just sleep our way into God's kingdom. It requires a certain eagerness, a certain earnest desire. 
Now, Jacob's methods are not always right, uh, but in the depths of his heart, he wants the blessing of God. And he'll do just about anything to get it. Well, after Jacob's 20 years of exile working for Laban, he hears the call of God to return to his homeland, the promised land, the land of his father. And so one day when Laban is away, Jacob gathers his family, his servants, and his herds, and his flocks, and he makes a run for home. And in chapter 31, which we've skipped over, Laban there goes after him, tracks Jacob down, intending to harm him. But God protects Jacob, and he and Laban end up parting their ways peacefully. And so Jacob leaves the hostile land of Laban, but now he's about to enter the hostile land of Esau. He had uh, escaped from conflict with Laban, but now he's faced with an even greater conflict. His unresolved feud with his brother Esau, the brother he had cheated out of his birthright and blessing. But here at the beginning of chapter 32, it says the angels of God met Jacob. Now remember, 20 years before, at Bethel, when he was running from Esau, Jacob was met there by a vision of angels ascending and descending from heaven. He said, this is the gate of heaven. And there he made a vow saying, if God will be with me, then he will be my God. So now as he's returning to the territory of Esau, he's met again by angels. And he says in verse 2, this is the camp of God. As Bethel was the gate of heaven, Jacob calls this place Mahanaim, God's camp on earth. And God's angels there assure Jacob that just as God had protected him against Laban, he will also protect him against Esau. Nevertheless, for, for 20 years now, Jacob had been anxious. He had been worried about his relationship with Esau. What would happen when he returned home? Would Esau look for revenge? And so for 20 years, Jacob had no peace about what lay ahead. And this was the price of getting his own way, doing things his own way. You know? So even though Jacob got the birthright and the blessing, he still didn't feel blessed. And that's because our past sins can't be ignored as if they never happened. They have to be dealt with before we can move ahead. The core of our own lives, we want things our own way. We want things to be just the way we want them, like Jacob did. But when we cheat or, or lie or step on others to get them, we'll find we're not at peace. A Christian psychologist uh, retiring after 40 years of being a counselor said, I spent, my, spent time with people from all walks of life and all sorts of backgrounds. Yet at the core of those conversations, the essential question each person is asking is this, how can I get my life, my relationships, and my world to all be at peace with one another? Well, that was Jacob's question too. After fighting and conniving to get his inheritance and his blessing, his life and his identity, his relationships and his world were not at peace. The core of our being, we all long to have that blessing of peace and to be at peace. Jacob tried to work out a blessing for himself here like we sometimes try to do too. But only God can give us the blessing of real and true peace in life. It's actually the invitation of 
Jesus, who says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's the promise of God's blessing. Have you found it? Have you opened yourself to receive the blessing of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Have you said yes to the, the blessing that God alone can give you through knowing Christ? The blessing of peace, the true gift of peace in your life. And this is what Jacob was lacking. Well, after his encounter with these angels, Jacob does two things. First, in verses 3 to 5, he sends messengers ahead of him to meet his brother Esau. And with a message humbly referring to himself as Esau's servant and Esau as his lord and master. So Jacob here is voluntarily affirming his subordinate position to his older brother. He's humbling himself. And when he hears back from those messengers that Esau is now coming with 400 men, he's afraid. And so he divides his people and his flocks into two groups, thinking that one may escape if Esau attacks the other. And then Jacob does the most important thing he's ever done. Verse 9, it says, Then Jacob prayed. I mean, this is the first time we actually see Jacob praying. And though his prayer is only three verses, verses 9 to 12, it's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. I mean, this is a guy who has been basically prayerless and has caused so much trouble and, uh, and heartache and is now, though, being transformed as he commits himself to God in prayer. And it's a good prayer. He admits his unworthiness. He casts his future entirely on the promises of God. And he's beginning to see that God's program means becoming smaller. As Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. So finally, Jacob is developing a right relationship with God so that now he can develop a right relationship with his brother. So he sends a, a generous gift of flocks and herds ahead onto uh, Esau, sends his family and all his possessions across the Jabbok River, which is a tributary to the Jordan. And then Jacob stays alone by himself on the banks of the Jabbok. He's done everything he could do, but now he just wants to prepare his heart in prayer for this threatening encounter ahead of him. And for the first time here, he's seeking the blessing in the right place, not from his own scheming, but from God. So Jacob was learning that all his struggling against man had really gotten him nowhere because the one he really must ultimately struggle with is God. Now the name of the river Jabbok is significant here. It means emptying or outpouring. And you know, God wants to bring each of us to the Jabbok, the place of emptying, place where our struggling turns to surrender, place where we experience that crippling victory or what Frederick Buechner called the magnificent defeat. And that's where we allow God to be God in our lives. It says in verse 24, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And in the course of that all-night wrestling match, uh, Jacob comes to realize that it's really God himself who he is wrestling with. I mean, wrestling has been a theme of 
Jacob's whole life here, from grabbing Esau's heel at birth to striving with Esau for birthright and family blessing to wrestling that huge stone off the mouth of the well to water Rachel's flocks and his many struggles with Laban. And now this culminating struggle, this culminating moment in his life story here. God comes to Jacob in such a a human-like form here that Jacob can actually wrestle with him successfully. And it says the man saw that he could not overpower him. So surely this, uh, this epiphany, this manifestation of God in human form, I mean, could have just pinned Jacob to the ground, right? I mean, it was God. Couldn't he have just got Jacob in a half Nelson or a double reverse or put the sleeper hold on him or something? <laughs> what kind of God would wrestle to a draw with a man? Well, it's a picture of how God makes himself available to us. God doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to transform us. And yet he shows Jacob here that he can disable him easily. It says he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. And so with a kind of a severe mercy here, God dislocates Jacob's hip. And the hip is the wrestler's pivot of strength. So Jacob's strength to wrestle is gone. He can't wrestle any longer. He can only cling prayerfully to God's grace. Jacob's great strength and even his ability to walk normally had been broken down by God so that Jacob could see that all he can do is cling to God and seek a blessing from him. So Jacob says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So at last Jacob here is looking for a blessing in the right place and in the right way. It's when Jacob is broken by God's severe mercy, that he begins to persevere in prayer rather than in his own natural strength. So how about you and me? Do we trust God enough to cling to him, even when he seems to oppose us? Even when he allows us to face trials and difficulties in life? Or are we only ready to follow him when he rolls out the red carpet for us? One thing that happens to Jacob here needs to happen in our spiritual journey as well. And it has to do with our identity. In verse 27, the man asked Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob admits for the first time in the whole story, my name is Jacob, heel grabber, cheater, deceiver. So far, he's never actually used his own name in the story. He told Isaac that he was Esau. He told Rebecca, Rachel that he was the son of Rebekah. But now at last he he takes the mask off and he admits to God and to himself who he really is. And he's become authentic and real. He's no longer Esau in disguise or merely his mother's son. He's himself. He's Jacob. He's that cheating heel grabber. He gets honest about himself and the way that he has lived and that's when God blesses him. That's Part of our surrender to God, too. Dropping our mask. Admitting our sin and our pride or our hypocrisy or our weakness. And having a broken heart before God. The Hasidic Jewish writers used to say, there is nothing so whole as a broken heart. 
And that's when God can heal us and give us a new identity. But it's a new identity that does come with a limp, not physically, but wrestling with God cripples our proud self-sufficiency and causes us to be dependent on him. And that's a good thing. It's a limp to remind us of the life that we're leaving behind and of the weakness that God can now fill with his power. The limp, the, the dependence on God is the posture of a Christ follower who walks not in physical strength, but in spiritual strength. It's a crippling victory that, that says what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, that when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's the weakness of having to leave behind some part of our life that we were wrongly depending on. And when we stop wrestling with our Heavenly Father and start clinging to Him, we find that He's been there all along for our good and just waiting to bless us. You know, Jacob and Esau's story is a lot like Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. The two prodigals, actually, Luke 15, the elder brother and the younger brother. And both stories here about brothers, about believers whose hearts are not yet broken before God. The elder brother in the parable lives a, a decent life, but he doesn't know his father's heart. And Esau, like him too, was satisfied with the life he had created for himself. And he doesn't care that much about the promise of God or the blessing of God. And Jacob is like the younger son. The younger brother who wants the, the blessing and even cheats to get it, but ends up in the far country where he's humbled and his life is transformed. And then as he wrestles with God there at the Jabbok, Jacob learns to cling to God. He experiences the embrace of God. Jacob is given a new name, Israel, which means one who strives with God. And he becomes the father of a nation, a nation that will also wrestle with God. So one of the things that happened to Jacob and needs to happen in our spiritual journey is coming to terms with our new identity as followers of Christ, as people who depend on God alone. So Jacob leaves from that place a changed man. And in verse 31, we we see him heading homeward with the morning sun shining on him, limping toward his destiny as the founder of God's people. The man, Jacob, was defeated in his struggle with God, but the man, Israel, emerged victorious and went on to become the father of God's people. How can we miss, though, here, the connection to the cross of Christ? I mean, the Son of God also endured the assault of God the Father there on the cross so that the blessing might flow to his people. Jesus wrestled with God on our behalf. He wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out, Father, if possible, may this cup be taken from me. He wrestled on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the result of Jesus' wrestling was far more than just a dislocated hip. He was flogged. He was crucified. He was burdened with the weight of our sin. But he clung to that cross and would not let go. 
until he received a blessing. Not a blessing for himself, but a blessing for us, for his people. And through his faithful clinging to the Father, he triumphed over sin and death and brought us new life. And he was given a name that's above every name, the Messiah, Christ, the Lord. Jesus is the true Israel who struggled with man and struggled with God and overcame. Jesus struggled on the cross, though, not so that you and I would never have to struggle, but so that our struggles might be fruitful, make us more like him. It's in our wrestling and in our struggling that we can finally be taught to let go of our self-dependence and to look to the cross, clinging to God alone for his blessing. So cling to God with all your being, and you will find that he will not let you go. I close with the fitting words of a hymn written in the 19th century by hymn writer George Matheson. The opening words are, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Let's prepare to take communion.